Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? You know I do. Imagine the moment where you know God loves you. You know I do. It's the third Sunday of Easter for us, um, which, by the way, it feels so, Easter feels so long ago. Does anybody else feel like Easter? It's, it's only been, when Katie's like, two weeks ago, what did we do? And I was like, what did we do two weeks ago? It feels very long ago. So it's the third Sunday of the Easter season for us, but chronologically in John's gospel, it's still in these early days of the resurrection. And in the indomitable words of one Taylor Swift, everything has changed. Today's gospel is a story of discipleship. We can really get lost in the story and images of fishing and breakfast and forgiveness, but when you put it all together into one story like we heard this morning, it is a story of what it means to be a disciple. If you look closely enough, if you really dig into it, it's almost impossible to miss the connections to the first call of the disciples and this one. I mean, Jesus concludes his breakfast with the disciples with the words, follow me. It's a new call for a new discipleship because everything has changed. In a post-resurrection world, discipleship just does not look the same as it once did. It cannot. But I'm jumping ahead too quickly, so let's first set the scene. And I can't actually go forward without saying that um, John is wrong. This is not the third time Jesus appeared. It is the fourth because he appeared to women first, and they count. Okay, they count. Mary counts. Thank you. Fourth time. John's wrong. So we're setting the scene. We find Peter and some, but not all, of the disciples hanging out. By my count, there are just seven here. And Peter makes sort of a group decision. You know, let's go fishing. In the midst of grief and loss, sometimes you just have to put one foot in front of the other. Do what you know how to do best. Some of you really, really understand this. For Peter, that wasn't going out and building a church or preaching the gospel or even being a disciple. Realistically, he hadn't spent the greater part of his life doing those things. He had spent most of his life fishing. He'd only spent the last few years learning what it meant to be a disciple. So when everything fell apart, when Jesus was killed, he did what you do when everything falls apart. Now, yes, Jesus rose, and they're pretty sure he rose. It was all very new and very confusing still. I know some people give Peter a hard time for his choice to go fishing here, but I fully understand it. They were in that disbelief stage, uncertain of what their own experience had shown them. Could it be true? Did we just imagine it? I mean, he was here, right? He was, he, he was right here, right? But he's not here now, and he didn't stay, so maybe we just imagined it. Maybe our grief told us something that wasn't true. Peter here basically says, I don't know what to do here, and I don't know what any of this means. We can't keep going back to doing what we were doing with Jesus because he's not here, but we can't keep hiding here either, so we have to do something. So let's go fishing. 
I can picture the scene pretty quickly. Anybody else find it ironic that I said I don't like fishing a few weeks ago, and then, of course, I get all the fishing texts this season? Great. It's great. It's great. I've noticed. Um, I can picture the scene very clearly, though. I imagine Peter trying to work through some things on that boat. Anyone who's ever spent a fruitless day of fishing knows that your thoughts are loud when the fish are quiet. I wonder if his thoughts turned to that night where Jesus died, when he was in that courtyard and denied knowing Jesus. I think about how silence makes us question ourselves, brings us back to something we said or did we wish we would have said or done differently. I wonder if he just replayed that scene in his head over and over and over again, wishing against all hope that he had instead loudly declared his allegiance to Jesus no matter what. Oh, regret is powerful. And it often leads us towards shame. So Peter and those six other disciples are fishing all night long, and they don't catch anything. And in the morning, some random dude on the shore shouts out to them, Hey, no fish, huh? Now, I notice I've mentioned many times I'm no fisherwoman, but I have a lot of memories from my childhood of sitting on the dock and shouting, How are the fish today? to the boats going by on that still, smooth, early morning water. I'm sure they loved it. This feels the same to me. I can picture it so clearly. No luck out there, huh? Right? I even picture it with a Minnesotan accent. Any fish today? The random guy on the shore shouts back after they say no. Cast the net on the other side of the boat. This has a real, have you tried leeches energy to it, doesn't it? But they do it. Maybe there's some kind of fisherman's code I don't know, but so they do it. I would have, I'm oppositionally defined enough, I would have been like, no, you put your net on the other side. But they do it, and bam, fish everywhere. And somewhere in the back of John's mind, a moment from a few years ago shimmers. He and Peter turn to each other, eyes wide. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? This seems familiar, doesn't it? When scarcity turns to abundance, who's usually there? It's got to be Jesus. So Peter, in such a funny detail, jumps in, swims to shore, knowing Jesus is there. I love this part of the story. How do they recognize Jesus' abundance? That helps us know. How do we recognize Jesus in abundance? Abundance, the recognition of it, the seeing it, the experiencing it, makes us open and a little wild, and it makes us do things we might not otherwise do, like jump out of a perfectly good boat for a little more Jesus just a little bit faster. Regret and fear makes us contract. It makes us hide and run away and deny. We draw in, we close ranks, we get mean. But Jesus comes and stands in the midst of our locked rooms and reminds us everything has changed. Do not fear. And then when we don't know what to do next, 
he shows up again, and he shows up again, and he reminds us with abundance. So the other six disciples being uh, maybe as enthusiastic as Peter, I imagine they're still excited, but maybe smarter than Peter because they just arrive shortly after, fully dry in their boat with a net full of fish. And there they find Jesus next to a charcoal fire and he says, come have breakfast. He breaks bread, feeds them fish, they eat together. They are back around a kind of table. Again, eating with Jesus. Everything has changed, really, but this is constant. The sharing of a meal, the gathering, the intimacy and care that comes when we feed each other and eat together. Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep, tend his flock, feed his sheep, feed and tend, feed and tend, he says, while feeding them. Note that Jesus does it first, as usual. You can't be a disciple without being a feeder. That's what today's gospel is trying to tell us. What does it mean to be a disciple now that Jesus has risen? Feed and tend. Feed and tend. I think the church, the big C church, has gotten this very, very, very wrong over the years. We have been distracted thinking discipleship is about how many people are in worship or our church's reputation or even about how many souls have been saved or how much money we're bringing in. Feed and tend, feed and tend, Jesus says. Discipleship looks like this. And he breaks bread and he feeds the disciples. This is the question we're trying to answer today as we wonder together what it means to be a disciple after the resurrection, Jesus tells us clearly. And I want to end this morning by spending just a little more time in this moment between Jesus and Peter. We often read, me included, I've been, this whole section to me has been read as Jesus asking Peter to repent of the three denials from the night he died. That's always how I've read it. That's always how I've understood it. But it has always felt a little transactional to me in a way that I did not like. Like, you have to do these three things. Uh, I'm, you know, former Catholic, so this feels like how many rosaries you have to say after doing the bad thing you did, right? So you denied me three times, you have to say I love you three times, right? It felt a little, it just feels a little transactional in a way that I've never really loved. So I spent some time this week with this text, wondering what else might be happening here. The line, I do not know this man, that Peter says, is not in John's gospel. Now, Peter does say it in both Luke's gospel and in Matthew's telling of the passion narrative, but John does not say it. In John's gospel, when Peter is in those outer courts, listening to Jesus on trial around a charcoal fire, they ask him, aren't you one of the disciples? And he says, I am not. I had never, ever heard that difference until this week. Peter did not deny knowing Jesus. He denied his discipleship. I am not a disciple, he said. Now, you might make an argument, this is the same thing, Natalia. You could say that. But then we have this story in front of us. 
This is the only gospel where this story appears, only in John's gospel. Does he make the connection of Jesus and Peter around another charcoal fire, eating breakfast, with Jesus asking Peter if he loves him, and then ends the conversation with the words, follow me. Everything has changed. Discipleship looks different. Peter, do you love me? I do. Peter, do you love me? I do. Peter, do you love me? You know I do. Imagine how this feels to Peter. John notes, yes, that Peter is hurt by the question being asked the third time. But it's the change in his response that makes this moment when Peter says, you know I do, different than the ones before it. Even though I didn't show it, even though I ran away, even though I said I was not a disciple, you know I love you. This is a moment where all that shame that Peter had held on to, the regret that he had most likely spent the whole night churning through in his mind, it's the moment he lets it go. He had doubted his discipleship, his inclusion in the family of God by saying, I am not. He still doubted it. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? You know I do. Imagine the moment where you know God loves you. You know I do. Columnist and author Debbie Thomas summarized the same moment a few years ago when she wrote, in the end, Peter realized that it is what Jesus knows that matters most. Jesus knows that we are more than our worst failure and betrayal. He knows that we are prone to shame and self-hatred. He knows the deep places we flee to when we fail. And he knows how to build the fire and prepare the meal that will beckon us back to the shore. Jesus' appearance to Peter, like all of the appearances after the resurrection, speaks volumes about God's priorities. In the days following the resurrection, Jesus doesn't waste a moment on revenge or retribution, like I might. He doesn't storm Pilate's house or avenge himself on Rome, punish the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. He returns and spends his time on earth feeding and restoring and strengthening his friends. Just think of the past few weeks. He called Mary Magdalene by her name as she cried. He offered his wounds to a skeptical Thomas. He grilled fish for hungry disciples. He heals what's wounded and festering between his heart and Peter's. Thomas continues, in other words, Jesus focuses on these, in these days, on relationship, on reconciliation, on love. He spends the last days before his ascension delivering his children from fear, despair, self-hatred, and paralysis. He wastes no time on triumphalism or smugness. 
Even at the height of his power, he chooses humility. He chooses to linger on a lonely beach until dawn, waiting for his hungry children to realize how much they need him. He chooses to feed and tend his sheep. So can we. This morning we get to wonder together what it looks like to be a disciple today, on this day, in this world, in this time and place. A few weeks after, again, everything has changed. It feels like every time a new story comes out, or a new variant hits, or something's exploding in the world, literally and metaphorically, everything changes. It's hard to get used to all the change, all the change, all the change. And we are tired. We want it to just stop. So it's nice to have a moment where Jesus looks at us and says, how might you feed and tend? Where Jesus looks at us and says, let me show you first. Jesus says, I love you. Have some breakfast. Come to the table. So that's where we're going to start this morning. We are going to gather at this table. We are going to eat together. We are going to be reminded that God shows up in the midst of regret and fear and glaze-eyed confusion, offers us a meal, and then invites us to go and do the same. Amen. So we have been fed, we have been invited to the table, we were invited here, Jesus said, come eat breakfast with me, we did that, and now we go and bring this word of love and feeding and tending to a world that needs us to be doing this work in it. So do we go in peace to love and serve the Lord.